Hey everyone, this is Freen, and you're listening to Super Smash Host, the podcast where we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Dane Nakama. Dane is a content creator on TikTok and an artist, and I'm so honored and excited to have Dane on to talk today about the topic of cuteness and colonization. Dane, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Hi, um, my name's Dane. I am an artist who is currently pursuing their bachelor's in fine arts at the California Institute of the Arts, um, and I'm currently based and from Hawaii. Wow, so you're from Hawaii, but are you part of the Japanese diaspora, from what I understand? Um, somewhat, yeah. I am quite involved with like the Japanese culture or immigration history in Hawaii within my research as well as like um Japanese American society in California. Um and I also lived in um Tokyo for a little bit, uh, to study abroad. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. When did you live there? Um, I lived there, when did I live there? Like for the spring of 2019. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Right. So a year after me, I was there 2017 to 2018. Um, Oh, just missed each other. Just missed, yeah. (laughs) But so you're an artist. What kind of art do you do? I've seen from your TikTok that you do a lot of photography, but what other mediums do you work with? I know you mentioned today that you had a painting in front of you. Yeah. So, um. I am actually primarily a painter and ceramicist, um, but I haven't had facilities to create ceramics recently, sadly. Um, so it, it varies. I, I work in um, painting, uh, sculpture, ceramics, video work, um, some performance and some photography. Um, but I usually tell people the cohesiveness to my practice is more in the ideas rather than the medium itself. So like, depending on what the idea is, I'll pick and choose what medium um, would best translate those ideas. Yeah. So regarding ideas, is there a central theme that you tend to work with? Or is it quite fluctuating? I mean, I assume since you're in school, you explore a lot of different topics. But is there something that really resonates that you bring through all of your work? Yeah, um, Recently, my work has been um, primarily uh, concerning theories of uncertainty, um, that being like philosophy, um, history, um, and all through this kind of aesthetic vocabulary combining the cute and the conceptual. Because mm-hmm. um, for me, I think cuteness um, as not only an aesthetic, but a kind of mentality is this layer of accessibility in art that's new and it's it's exciting that it's coming to the art world recently. Yeah. Okay. And can I just ask a quick quick question? Why did you turn to TikTok to talk about art and to display a lot of your work? And I know you use TikTok to talk about art theories and art history. Um, and it's a really interesting platform. What drew you to it? Honestly, um, at first, it started off because it was quarantine and I was so like just at an end of what I should be filling up my time with. So I was like, you know, why not jump on? And then weirdly enough, it was my art 
I did one art history video that went viral and I was so baffled by that because I never thought that so many people had an interest in it. And then I, I realized exactly, oh, I, you know, the capacity of the platform to kind of translate art vernacular and make art in general more accessible to people. Um, so yeah, it's kind of shifted into that being my primary reasoning and efforts to just widen the art um, art world and discussion of art in general. Yeah, I think that's something that's really interesting. Um, and in one of these readings that you pointed me to earlier, there was this kind of talk that our personal relationship to art goes far beyond like traditional artwork. Um, and we interact on a daily basis with things that are produced artfully or content that's produced artfully. And I think um, if you're not in the arts, it's really easy to forget that. And I often tend to have this view of the arts as fine arts, as something that is out there that people who practice art or who do art um, engage with and us common folk are not part of that world. And your TikToks really do like make that much more accessible. Thank you. That that means a lot to me, actually. That's the that's a big point to um, yeah, not only the videos, but even in my practice, I focus on accessibility. Yeah. So you're I don't know if it's the exact same one, but um, what TikTok caused you to go viral? I know what TikTok I found of you first, which is why I reached out to you, but I'm not sure if they're the same video. Um, the first art history video I did was on a piece by the artist Felix Gonzalez Torres. Um, it's titled Untitled um, and in parentheses, Perfect Lovers. And it's been my favorite piece for a while. Um, it's of two store-bought clocks. And it's a very romantic piece. Um, I don't know how much time I can speak to it, but in short, the clocks are meant to describe how um, lovers or couples uh, like clocks, though starting off in sync, um, fall out of sync eventually. Um, that's just how things go, but they are still perfect nonetheless. And the kicker and the, the big um, moving point of the piece is when I reveal that Felix's partner died of AIDS during the AIDS epidemic in the U.S. and Felix passed just a few years later as if his clock ticked a little slower. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, it was one of those moments where, you know, an art piece that at first glance is like, what, what am I looking at here? And then once you unpack it, um, is really romantic and kind of a, just a nice idea to have. Wow, my heart feels all warm and fuzzy, like... I think I'm swooning a little bit. That is incredibly romantic and romantic and sad knowing, you know, the personal history of what happened to to Felix. But wow. Um and actually now that you're saying it, I did see this TikTok of yours, but I wasn't sure which TikTok um really changed the way your platform was. The TikTok I found of yours that really resonated with me, which I think is going to be the broader topic of today's conversation, although we can dip in and out of various things, is you did a TikTok on the theme, well, you did three actually, on the theme of cuteness and colonization. So how did that come up and what point, um, what made you decide to start talking about that on your platform? Yeah, um, this is, well, it's interesting because this topic of cuteness and colonization isn't like foreign to uh, Japanese contemporary art. In fact, a lot of um, Japanese contemporary art, specifically that of the super flat movement, uh, ties kawaii culture and manga and anime culture 
to um, its origins post-World War II. Um, But many uh, scholars and most of the papers written about Superflat and this contemporary movement is about how this uh, manga and cartoon um, aesthetic to Japan is a result of infantilization of Japan uh, post-atomic bomb. So after the atomic bomb, um, Japan as a nation was demasculinized, demilitarized. You know, it they were left in a state of infantry, infancy, um, and yeah. And but equally so, I thought it is important to acknowledge the fact that just as much as yes, it is a response to the atomic bombs, um, it is also a very convenient rebranding of a nation that has this history of imperialism and colonization. Um, which is not so often talked about. Yeah, and I mean, just to go back for a second, before even considering Japan, I know you briefly touched on the fact that even European countries have used um, this, have used artwork to depict their relationship with imperialism and colonialism. You spoke about how beauty is attributed to skin color. And I know a lot of Victorian art in particular, it depicts the colonized often in hypersexualized manners or as the other or as the orient based on like um edward said's work of orientalism and how this plays into a longer history of artwork and colonial projects um so is this a theme that you see throughout artwork totally i mean it was really fascinating to see people react to that as a just as a point of like just a point in history that often history that we're presented with isn't the whole story and often history isn't just one story um but um it is something that has continued throughout art art history in general where even um cubism um like an iconic movement defining movement in art history in general was based off of um you know african mass and indigenous cultures that were quite frankly just you know, commercialized and stolen from these cultures and rebranded under European names to be innovative. And um, and they even use, you know, like just derogatory terminology as to what the reference was, that it was like primitive art, that cultures not of the European canon are always primitive and will always be of the other. Right. You know, it's, it's a commonality throughout art history that needs to be reckoned with. That's so interesting, too, because I think often, especially when we're looking at historic artwork or artwork that depicts historic events, we tend to view it very similar to a photograph as something that is representing a real moment in history and not as a narrative, which is actually what art is. It's a narrative based on one person's point of view. Um, but yeah, it is, it's often this, that interrogation of saying who painted this and what are they trying to depict in this is lost on the I guess common viewer or the common person engaging with art without that like critical lens how would you tell people to develop a critical lens for looking at art well I think one thing that is really exciting and interesting is that you know we're currently the world is going through a social awakening um partly because we're all stuck at home and actually given the time to do research into th- issues that we otherwise haven't. Um, but I also uh, did a video about um, the Gorilla Girls group, a contemporary art group um, that is 
all women who are known as the conscience of the art world. And they, they always say, when you go to an institution, when you go to an, a museum, not only look at what is in the museum, but think about what's not being shown. Think about what's mm-hmm. not being talked about in the museum. Because just as much as history of any sort is telling of exactly what it's iterating, it's also telling to know what they're excluding, what they're not pointing out, what they're choosing to leave out of the story. Um, this is all, and, and acknowledging that and just being able to tell people to question what they are being taught um, is a process of learning in itself. Wow, yeah, that is, that's something that's so interesting. And I mean, me for me living in London, arts and museums are everywhere around me, right? Like I'm in quite a cultural capital for that type of thing. And understanding um, or taking that point of view with me of what's not being shown here is something I haven't ever thought about. Um, so yeah, thank you. That's very interesting. No, yeah, it's definitely crazy. It's definitely crazy. I, I actually, there was um, an article uh, published in 2019 by Smithsonian Magazine. And this is a tangent, but uh, it, it went as, they took a poll of all of the major museum institutions. And it showed that, I don't know the exact statistic, but it was like something like 87% of the artists in museums are male and 86% are all white. Wow. Um, which is a crazy statistic, right? And, you know, I, I know this isn't talking, speaking to uh, colonial. No, 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 please. But, but I think that's crazy that, that the, the point being that that's the vast majority of art we're presented with all the time. Um, and art history in general is a Western convention that mm-hmm. has been widely accepted. So, of course, it's going to be um, curated to a certain extent. Yeah. That is so interesting, especially if I bring that idea to looking at Kauai. Um Kawaii as a concept, at least to me, has always been something that's been such a feminine or such a gendered um, concept. I mean, even before I lived in Japan, the only Japanese word I knew was kawaii. And, you know, I heard it as a little kid because of Avril Lavigne and Gwen Stefani and the Harajuku girls. And like, you know, everyone knew Harajuku kawaii fashion. And it was, at least in my experience, a heavily gendered term um specifically one that connotated like female cuteness but i guess that begs the question of what does kawaii mean beyond cute because i know it does have wider implications other than just being the japanese word for cute yeah um it's really fascinating because um kawaii so I briefly mentioned, I misspelled it in the video um, as I, I, I was corrected, but there is this weird um, vocabulary parallel between the term kawaii and kawaii-so mm. um, because kawaii-so, um, you know, is, oh, helpless and whatnot. But be, just because of the similarities in its pronunciation, there has been this societal link between what creates something to be cute is a lack of agency, a lack of um, one's ability to help themselves. So this totally comes in line with um, a lot of Japanese, you know, misogynistic mentalities of how the woman is to be helped, the woman is to be, um, you know, of a a nature that is only serving to others or whatnot, right? It's, it's, 
completely in line with, and also it's also in line with how we perceive children. Um, in the in the text I uh, referenced before, or that I sent to you previously, by I think it was Nye. I'm not sure. Actually, I I I read those <laughs> pieces a long time ago, but they went as far to speak speak to exactly how kawaii um, is about uh, just being able to not do something for yourself. Um, that's a connotation of cuteness. And it, it's weird how that makes sense. Um, when we look at babies, babies have large eyes and small mouths. You know, they perceive everything but say little. Um, and they also need to be taken care of. They're helpless. But that's what makes them cute. Um, in the same sense, a lot of manga um, kara, uh, the specific brand of cute animation characters, have large eyes and small mouths or no mouths. Um, it translates over to this cuteness just equating to helplessness, um, which is crazy. That's an, an interesting parallel, I think. Right. And then another parallel I think you made in your TikTok was that this vulnerability and this weakness matches Japan's um, position on the national or sort of the international stage following World War II. Um, and, you know, Japan wanting to convey the message of weakness and vulnerability um, in a way to, as you said earlier, rebrand themselves from this imperialist aggressor. So how how exactly did that work? Um, or how is it still working? Like, is it fair to say that Kauai is a soft power cultural export of Japan? Oh, oh yes. Uh, I think, <laughs> um, I mean, even out removed from this dialogue of colonization it's very hard to refute the soft power of anime and manga culture it is you know the fact that anime is it's not even for many a lot perceived to be a japanese word anymore it's kind of just in the world vernacular like oh anime like that refers to this specific origin of japanese animation you know um but i think just as much so um it is it is uh difficult to acknowledge yes it is this big you know uh ginormous power soft power that exists amongst the global dialogue um that rebranded japan to be you know the soft or cute culture um it's it's hard to it's hard to refute the fact that that is a convenient rebranding um especially you know as we've talked about or as you mentioned is is post-imperialist connotations of the Japanese, you know, country. Um, it's it is very hard to say that one is right or one exists and one doesn't. You know, it's paradoxical to say that either can exist without each other. Um, I got lost in that last statement. I think that made sense, but yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, it definitely made sense. Um, another thing I was just thinking about as you were talking is. You know, after the end of World War II, we saw the pacification of the Japanese nation, um, particularly Article 9, which prohibits Japan from having a military in the sovereign nation sense. Um, and often, like, again, as I have mentioned to you before, and I don't know if I mentioned at the top of this episode, I personally have no experience in art history. I know nothing about, you know, the vernacular for art um, but I do have a background in politics. And so something that came up a lot when talking about Article 9 
has been how Article 9 has seemed to feminize the Japanese nation by taking away its ability to have a proper functioning um, military. And, you know, feminization in this process has created a weak or vulnerable state, which many politicians in Japan have referred to. They When they talk about amending Article 9, they talk about how Article 9 has led to Japan being a... Um, weak state or not a real state um not a real nation and that to me at least parallels that idea of kawaii as without agency japan painting itself as a nation without agency yeah no definitely i think it it's it is this weird contradiction right that the fact that yes there's some truth to the demilitarization of Japan equating to this helplessness of sorts. But, you know, it's also very important to understand the reason as to why that happened and why that had to happen. Um, so it is, no, it's it's definitely a, a difficult and, you know, confusing subject to encounter or confront. Um, the other thing I... I noticed from your video that you brought up, but obviously it's a TikTok is a very short video that you can't go into a ton of depth, uh, depth unfortunately, unlike a podcast. So I'm glad that I have you on here to pick your brain um, because I know nothing about this. But you mentioned that Kauai, um, while also being related to colonization and rebranding of Japan, also has its root in a feminist revolution, um, particularly from schoolgirls, if I'm right about that. Could you give us a little bit more detail? Yeah. Um, so there, this is also post-war, um, but mm-hmm. um, there was a standardization to the Japanese curriculum, which many students were against because it kind of, it, it enabled this kind of uniformness to Japanese culture um, that was very much, you know, not, not to bring it into like, a capitalistic sense but it was it was a very capitalistic manufacturing sensibility where you know it was to crank out people to work for the Japanese economy and whatnot um, but uh, this movement uh, for you to use kawaii as a form of revolution was started by Japanese students primarily um, female identifying students and they would not only skip class to um, read manga culture, but they also went as far as to change their script, um, their style of writing to be this puffy style. I, I'm not, I know there was a specific name for the script, I'm, it's blanking on me right now. But even that style of writing was banned in a lot of schools because it was seen as this, um, this sense of individualization or rebellious nature amongst the students. Um, but then the style of puffy writing uh, beca- became popularized as now and now is like a common font used in advertisement. Um, but it is it is really fascinating because it in, even in that ex- extent that it, that you know as a, from a sociological study standpoint, um, it proves this capacity that cuteness can be used as a, as a weapon of sorts. Right. Um, to you know like the fact that that happened. Um, proves that it also can be used on a larger scale um, where cuteness can do something to aggravate the the construction of um, what we understand the world to be yeah so would it be then fair to say that kawaii 
in Japan functions as both something that creates Japanese national identity as vulnerable, so it creates conformity and it creates a national identity and disciplines people, but at the same time, it also functions um, as a form of rebellion. And what I'm specifically thinking about when I think about um, Kawaii as a form of rebellion in the modern sense is um, characters like Guritama and Agretsuko, where they are you know, actively taking a stand against what we so normally see as uniform Japanese culture. So Agretsuko, she, I don't know if you've ever seen the show um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or know anything about her, but her character, she's a character from Sanrio um, and she's an office worker, but she's like a punk rebel office worker and she's very against the system of traditional Japanese salaryman lifestyle. And Guritama, also a Sanrio character, which, you know, Sanrio created Hello Kitty, the famous, like, at least in my books, the most iconic kawaii character. Um, You know, your typical big eyes, no mouth. But Guritama is completely different to that. It rejects the conformity. It rejects the disciplines and the structures that Japanese society has tried to put on people. And it kind of accepts this melancholy laziness. So in some ways, I see kawaii is being being used to reject certain really um strict rules if that makes sense but i don't know if i'm interpreting that in the wrong way no you are totally totally right and i think one thing that was interesting when posting those videos about um directly linking cuteness to colonization was the backlash um that i received because people had pointed out that you know the origins and of kawaii culture in general were of a rebellious nature to not conform to to express individuality to make sure that you know and it, it also led to a lot of the you know subsequent subcultures that we know um harajuku for mm-hmm. um you know there's there's a sophisticated history to cuteness in relationship to the japanese um and i i didn't mean to refute that in any sense in the videos um but it is important to know that even with good intentions or good origins it still could be used by you know alternate bodies to be capitalized on to be of a a different you know facade like image Um, because you know many animators um, post-war great animators um, were adamantly against against war were adamantly against violence to the further extent furthest extent but Sadly, especially amongst the capitalistic nature in society, um, even artwork to any, and this is applies to all art, artwork used in the wrong context or used in the wrong setting or, you know, can be interpreted in other ways. Um, and especially paired with Japan's adamancy to consistently, uh, you know, correct and reform their history curriculum not, uh, sorry, I'm not even going to say correct or reform, just change and edit their history curriculum to leave out war atrocities, it's hard not to juxtapose the two together. Um, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's not to say that kawaii culture hasn't had this capacity to do great, do great things for the Japanese people. It has done amazing things and it's, it's been able to, you know, become this defining feature that should be proud, you know, we should be proud of. Um, but it, two things can be true where 
equally so this thing that has done great things has overshadowed a history that has been unrecognized um which is yeah which is something that i think is is good to clarify right yeah understanding that kawaii can be both things i think that that's quite a powerful statement um especially on this podcast we always try to show that you know things are much more nuanced than than it seems um that that point is particularly interesting talking about kawaii and art in specific how it gets co-opted by capitalism one thing i was thinking about which you know this i have no reason i have no way to back this up i don't know if it's true at all but can the emergence of cuteness as an aesthetic in some way be linked to the rise of female consumerism and the need to a appease to a female consumer demographic and i don't like i don't study art i don't study consumerism i like this is all quite beyond me but it's just a thought that i had while i was doing some reading was you know cuteness has historically not been taken seriously as an aesthetic form and has this new dependency on cuteness in some way been um a response to rising female economic agency that is a very good question i i don't know if i can speak to that with cohesive um or coherent factual evidence but you know um i will say yes as much as it is this kind of uh financial dependency on uh female involvement in in the economy and whatnot um i think it also is a marker of shift as to what how femininity is is trans has transversed over boundaries of sex space identifications right that you know um a feminine boy or a feminine male male identifying um person uh is more and more widely accepted and therefore the the economy or the market for such an aesthetic is expanding um because i i think one thing that is very interesting is at least to speak to art history um is that conventions of beauty beauty um you know though today we only describe women or female identifying people to be beautiful um conventions of beauty were never gendered um or weren't as gendered in art history um for a long time when you think of art and you say something's beautiful it doesn't it doesn't it's you're not saying it's beautiful because it was made by a woman you're saying it's beautiful because it's just a notion of art that we've described it with um i think that same understanding to an aesthetic sensibility is being applied now to cuteness where when you say something's cute it's not so much that it has a direct link to um you know the female sex but it's more so that as an aesthetic property everything and anything can be cute and the acceptance of that being just a commodity across um you know uh people is is being more and more interacted with especially in the arts where cuteness and i i tell people this it's really fascinating when i mention cuteness especially in the context of fine art in art history there's never really been a conversation of what's cute um when i say oh you know tell me a painting in art history that's cute you know it's very difficult because even the cupids painted in you know old renaissance paintings aren't necessarily cute they're kind of just heavenly very fat um <laughs> but 
as far as cuteness goes, there hasn't been a honing in on what cuteness serves for the vast majority of art dialogue until recently um, because of this acceptance of what how cuteness as a feminine um, connotation uh, isn't so much directly linked to just women anymore. Um, feminism, you know, as, as a lot of, you know, dialogue amongst feminism isn't just a topic for and of women, but it's of equality and, and something that transverses sex in general. The idea that um, cuteness has not been taken seriously throughout art history, I wonder if part of that is simply because cuteness has been associated with femininity and femininity is never taken seriously. Um, that's something that, you know, came to my mind when you were talking about this. But another thing I was considering is um, with cuteness becoming more culturally acceptable right now as you said in a commodity and it losing its specifically gendered connotations in the modern day we see cuteness you know applied to kawaii characters of of all type male and female and is this going to create a wider room for acceptance of fluidity particularly when we look at japan you know japanese society is still quite structured i find it quite um interesting to see that kawaii could be the or to consider that kawaii might be the vehicle which brings about greater fluidity on the gender and sexuality um spectrum and when we look at things like gender scripts and you know the roles and attributes and defining features we identify towards them can kawaii help us break down those rigid barriers i don't know if that made sense or if it was a tangent no that that totally made sense. I think you hit it right on the head. Like um, speaking to, you know, as you what you said at the beginning, how, how cuteness is, you know, its kind of or relationship to the feminine probably demeaned its respectability amongst the art world. I think that's totally valid. Till today, I mean, I make art at university, and the fact that my artwork in general is cute, um, professors question it. They're like, why? Why do you make it cute? And it's, I, I guess it's not so much strictly just feminine, but just, again, it's of cuteness having connotations of a lack of agency. You know, when someone sees something cute, you're like, oh, you're basically saying you're powerless, right? But again, you know, as we've talked about in this conversation, cuteness has a power to exert control um, that is, you know, very, very hard to refute. That the fact that if I were this adorable little supervillain, right? Um, you're a lot less likely to hit me because I'm so adorable um, than if you were in the same sense you would hit like someone who's really beautiful, right? Cuteness has the same capacity as beauty and people are finally realizing that. And as far as this um, dialogue of how cuteness can equate to fluidity, I think it already to a certain extent is happening. I'm not sure if it has um, to its further extent in, in Japan specifically, but I know like the idea of a uh, soft boy or the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, even in K-pop soft power, men, you know, male celebrities or male um, singers are, are given the liberty of being feminine and showing uh, feminine attributes um, because it's this, it, it is it's becoming this wider um, understood and accepted sensibility that is, not just of um, fe like female or women. Um, and so 
I think it's, yeah, I think it, it currently is happening. This transition of how cuteness is powerful um, is happening. And, and it's really exciting to see it happen, it, to see it blossom, I guess. That's so interesting. I wonder if it's the same when you're comparing Korean and, and American beauty trends, because in Korean beauty trends, you tend to see this overwhelming um, association with cuteness. You know, you have the puppy eyes versus in America, you have quite winged eyes, harsh contour, like the Kardashian look um, in contrast to the K-beauty look are two very, very different aspects, very different aesthetics. And one is can be characterized as more cute and vulnerable and innocent and one is more maybe beautiful um but i've also you know it especially with korean beauty and that idea of cuteness um it feeds into that narrative of asian women as as more docile as more vulnerable Mm. um as as with less agency so uh, while there's so much power in it i also wonder i guess who um whoever is branding the sword has the power, right? Like it's almost like a double-edged edged sword. Definitely, definitely. It is, that is a, a very difficult uh, attribute to, to talk about um, with this rise in cuteness because you're totally right. It's kind of, I don't know what a good example of this would be is, I guess, you know, I think in Western conventions, a parallel to this might be that um, you know, uh, like the, the, the idea of the dumb blonde, right? The dumb blonde being this person, this idealized, you know, white figure who is only recognized for their beauty, for being, you know, um, lustrous or not lustrous, but, you know, sexy. And, and that connotation of beauty to be of a very, not only discriminative or, or, uh, diminishing attribute, but, you know, um, that movie, what's the movie with the, the girl who goes to Harvard to study law? Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde, right, right? And so that in itself is playing on, sorry, I totally should have known that, but it's that in itself is playing on how even in the, the dialogue of beauty, um, it has been used as a weapon, right? That that so That entire narrative to the movie is, just as much about her challenging the, the, the connotations of her appearance um, as well as it is to be like, look, this is maybe it just as much as is a, a weakness as it could be um, something to utilize against people in a weird way. You know, I, I think it's, it's so com- difficult, not difficult and complex of a discussion that yes, it is something that we are known to be you know, demeaned by, like, especially in the sense of Asian men are even (laughs) attributed to be cute and vulnerable to the extent that that's not attractive in the Western world. Like a lot of Asian men are seen as, um, you know, uh, shy and and keeping to themselves, right? It's not the defining attribute of masculinity, male masculinity. And, but as much so now we're seeing celebrities capitalize on that very fact, right? The soft boy aesthetic, um, the the beautiful man, right? Challenging these conventions and these perceptions of what we previously deemed to be weaknesses, but now to be a, a sort of strength in a way. Um, yeah, if that made sense. 
No, it did. It also really made me think about, I think it's often that we conceptualize kawaii slash cuteness and sexuality as two different ends of one spectrum. Um, but then in reality, when we take a look, especially at Japanese culture, the hyper-pornographic like, nature of Japanese culture and you know the sexualization of kawaii characters is really mm-hmm. evident. And it shows us that I think kawaii and sex- sexiness and sexuality aren't two different ends, but they're actually quite interwoven, despite this idea that kawaii is innocence and kawaii is pure. I totally agree. I mean, the fact that I really think that cuteness and beauty um, as just like constructions of of aesthetic and and um, attractiveness are like two sides of the same coin. You know, um, they very much the fact that we've recognized the power of beauty for so long um, and discounted the power of cuteness for so long um, it's confusing to me because cuteness, you know, as we've seen through all the, you know, examples where we've been bringing up is of its, of its essence, just this aesthetic power or aesthetic weapon, you know, that people have consistently used to, you know, both demean people to um, empower themselves, right? It's, it's, the same thing with beauty, that beauty just as much can be destructive as it is constructive, um, which is, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. It's interesting, too. Another thing I was just thinking about when you talked about cuteness being powerful um, is, and this might be a bit of a stretch, actually, but the past few days I've been reading about um, do you know, I don't know how much you know about American politics, probably more than I do. I don't pay attention to it that much considering I live in the UK, but, uh, Kellyanne Conway's daughter, Claudia Conway, who on TikTok has been kind of this, you know, inner voice into what's happening in the Trump administration with coronavirus. And she's also been kind of heralded as this 15 year old whistleblower. Um, so ideas of this young girl, Claudia Conway, who's only 15, um, again, who has been labeled by media as this cute little girl. Greta Thunberg, again, this cute young girl. Um, Malala, all of these women who are at the forefront of a lot of really important social issues are often characterized as these cute young girls. And it's, I think part of their appeal is that cuteness, that innocence, um, and the fact that that innocence is driven to such lengths to advocate for the social issues they care about i think that is what gives these and i this is just based on my own interpretation not any you know academic backing but that's what gives these girls their power because they are they're young girls but it's that i find that cuteness and that innocence and youngness that they have um ends up playing a huge part in the role that they play and the advocacy work that they do most certainly, most certainly. I think um, it's, and it's so interesting because I think as you're speaking about that, I think these diminishing attributes to um, cuteness and the beautiful have always become kind of from this standpoint of the male gaze, where even in, you know, beautiful standards, you this convention or this idea of people see, being only seen as like a hot bod, right? Is very much, if not only, 
are not, I'm not going to say only, but is primarily seen through the lens of a male gaze, where it is this misogynistic tendency to objectify people based off of an appearance. Just as much so, it's often this male or not even male, but adult specific gaze to see the younger generation to be only cute, to be only people, children who ha- in that same connotation have a lack of agency. Um, so it is, it is interesting to, because just as much as it, it's pointing out the power that cuteness may have, it also points out exactly where this, this um, you know, misunderstanding of cuteness capacity for power comes from where it's just a lot of the time it's a older generation or an adult uh, designating children to be uh, enable uh, to invoke change, which is crazy, you know? Yeah. I, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to, I'm thinking about every time I've ever been called cute or um, any just experiences I've had with the word and all of them do seem you know, before this episode, I never would have really related that cuteness has to do with a lack of agency. I would have definitely, if you asked me what cute, like, you know, to do word association with you, I would have said cute, feminine, girly, young, but I never really would have thought about the word lack of agency. But the more we're talking about this, um, the more apparent it is becoming to me that that is a, a strong connotation of the word, both in English and in its Japanese sense. Um and yet, despite that connotation, there is so much power within cuteness. Yeah, it's it's mind boggling. I feel like it's something because and then and it's still misunderstood today that, you know, when people call my cute art cute, a lot of people, a lot of people, if someone called your painting cute or something you made cute, you'd be like, what the hell? Like, why would you say that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but for me, it's very much like, yes, thank you, because I kn- you know, recognizing the power of what cuteness has. Um, it's like, wow, that's a compliment, you know? Gosh, I feel like I could go on about this forever. This is so interesting to me. But um, yeah, is there, if there was one way that you could describe the most interesting fact that you have about, you know, kind of cuteness and colonization in this whole, because I realized that this is a dense field of theory and art history. And there's a lot of um, knowledge that goes on behind this and it's hard to probably simplify all of that for an audience that isn't aware of this um, and you've done such an amazing job is there you know something else that you think is a really key takeaway for listeners I think um, and this this not only applies to the dialogue of cuteness but it, it does very much so um, that you know every conversation it, that that's important and is is uh, of pertinence to people is going to be complicated. It's never going to be single layered. It's never going to be of one read. And I think um, I and this is also something that I've learned through the TikTok videos that you know in art and art education, it's commonly understood that like this learning through critique, this learning through discourse is of, of, of the main process through which we learn, that we learn through um, debates, we learn through disagreement, we learn through the oppositions of two valid sides, um, if not more. But I think 
if to anyone who's learning anything about art history, you know, culture in general, um, nothing is of one story, right? Um, cuteness is vulnerable. Cuteness is powerful. Cuteness is has just as much of a capacity to make someone go aw as they do aw, right? It's the same thing, and and acknowledging that something can be so complex would open yourself and and others in general to just greater truths. Um, so yeah, I think in 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 short, just knowing that things are complicated, but it is through this you know kind of winding path of understanding that we might understand things better than we have ever before that's really interesting and it's really i think this conversation particularly for people who aren't familiar with art um can really demonstrate that art is much more political than it may often seem on the surface i think it's easy to take for granted an image is just an image without considering the ideology and the discourse as you said behind it and the nuances that you know, these movements or these pieces, they all encapsulate wider political agendas. Um, and as somebody who is trained in politics, you know, my lens of analysis is everything is political. The personal is political. Nothing, you know, from art to movies to fashion to business is not political. Um, but I think it's really easy to sometimes view art as simply aesthetic. And this conversation, I think, really frames art as much more than something you you look at oh yeah all all art is political i i will say that as just a statement all art is political even art that is made to not be political in itself is taking a stance (laughs) in some way right um all art is political and i think yeah and i think what's even more exciting about that is that art because of that, because of what you just said, because that art has more to being just aesthetic things you hang on the wall, art is a lens that frames the world, right? It, it is, it, above everything, it's art and artists are just people who notice things. Um, and, and giving them that platform, the understanding that, hey, look, maybe this is a book rather than just a cover is, is opening up yourself to a, a amazing world of scholarly intellect. Yeah, and just tying it back to Japan um, as a good way to to wrap up is, you know, our understanding of Kauai influences our understanding of the Japanese nation and how we perceive Japan as a country is heavily influenced by how we perceive Kauai as either this innocent and vulnerable um, project or a rebranding or as something that's powerful and exported. I think that it shows us a lot more about the nation um, than we originally assume. Definitely, definitely. It's, if of everything, um, you know, I, I concluded in the Kauai and colonization video, um, to love something, to love an identity, and I love being Japanese, is to be critical of it, you know, to hold it accountable, to acknowledge what makes it great and what makes it not so great. Um, but that's what true love of anything is, is to be critical of it. And I think recognizing the multiplicity is is really important. Uh, this has been like, 
I'm not even lying, my favorite episode by far to record. I feel like I could bother you for another hour, but I don't think anybody's going to want to listen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Or I don't know, maybe they will. It would be interesting to talk more about your artwork. And yeah, I mean, I know that this is your only topic of expertise. You have a wealth of information on your TikTok about tons of different topics relating to art and art history. So before we sign off, do you want to let people know any concluding thoughts you have and where they can find you? I, you know, your TikTok, your Instagram, any other ways they can get in contact with you? How can they engage with your art, etc.? Yeah, um, well, I want to thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. I actually have been meaning to have a longer, a, a chance to elaborate the exact nuances to the, this complex topic. So I, I thank you very much for that. And um, if you're interested in my work, you can find my art on Instagram at by Dana Kama, um, B-Y-D-A-N-E-N-A-K-A-M-A, um, or at my personal Instagram at umeboy underscore. So U-M-E-B-O-I underscore. Um, and I think, yeah, and of everything, um, art is just something to discuss. Art, art isn't so much objects, but art is an interaction with something other than yourself. That is what art is. And so, you know, always reach out. I'm, I would love to keep talking up to anybody about this. And yeah, I'm excited to keep the conversation going. Yeah, and we'll make sure all of your links are included in the show notes and on our Instagram. So don't worry if you didn't catch all the letters. Everything will be in the show notes. Um, and yeah, like, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come. I know you're about to have a big move today. So thank you for taking the time. It was so incredibly interesting to talk to you. And hopefully we can have more great conversations about art and, um, you know, more in-depth conversations. I know there are specific Japanese artists who tackle these types of specific issues in their work, um, where they look at the origins of kawaii. And, you know, there's there's so much more we could talk about. And I really hope that we can do that sometime in the future. No, yeah, definitely. I'm so very, very much open to that. Thank you very much. Thank you guys so much for listening and thank you for coming on the show. Um, if you want to follow Super Smash Hose, you can follow us on Instagram at Super Smash Hose Media and online our website is www.supersmashhosemedia.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.